Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. What do we mean by a game changer? What do we mean by someone who is a pioneer, somebody who doesn't ask for permission, but instead works their way forward to a vision of what a better way of doing today's learning for tomorrow's world might be? Christine Causey is a game changer. Christine has been a significant voice for change in education in Australia for decades now. At the same time, She's also a brilliant practitioner. We're so excited to have Christine Causey, A-N-F-A-C-E-L, principal since 1997 of Rudy Hill High School with us here on the Game Changers. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 11 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We're proud to be partnered with The School for Tomorrow and Alex Bell at Portland Education in delivering a dynamic coaching-based leadership program called Lead Now. Lead Now provides the opportunity for emerging and established middle leaders to further build towards their full potential, contributing to the ongoing high performance of the school community they serve. Head to a schoolfortomorrow.com slash coaching. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. Uh, You look very, very refreshed and relaxed after your uh, extended time overseas and a little bit of a break before we start this series. Yes, thank you, mate. It is just lovely to have had the opportunity just to sort of stop and think and reflect for a little bit after spending time in the UK, seeing clients, presenting at conferences, lecturing at Oxford University, and then going over to Texas, where, of course, Adriano... A hat and boots were essential, weren't they? Yes, I was, I was a little a little concerned about what was happening with your attire with those animal printed boots and those hats. So I would imagine that the vegans of Texas were assaulted by their eyes because of what you were wearing. Anyway, ye- enough of this ye- nonsense. Partner, ye- <laughs> enough of this absolute nonsense. Christine, it is so wonderful to have you on the Game Changers podcast. Thank you very much for agreeing to be with us as part of Series 11. I'm going to ask you the very first question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, tell us about your story and how have you gotten to where you are today? I think sometimes by luck and a willingness to say yes to an opportunity. And I think really that's it. I do think there's been some planning, but occasionally things happen. And while you are busy doing your day-to-day thing that you do or your work that you do, pursuing what you believe to be your genuine purpose, standing on the values that you believe are absolutely critical, then an opportunity that aligns with those values or aligns with that purpose may come up. And a lot of people will say, oh, no, not at this time. And I have a very famous story of me saying, no, not at this time, and then saying yes to opportunity I think if you don't take it what's the worst that can happen is a question we often ask at Rooty Hill 
And it's a really important one because when you know or have a prediction of what's the worst that can happen, you know then that you can, anything from there is going to be okay. But also I just probably finish that question by saying the experience I've had at Rooty Hill over now, I believe it's now a quarter of a century, 25 years. Someone told me that this year. I was a bit shocked. I didn't realise it had been that long. But the situation was that we're a school that, based on our socioeconomic status, is one standard to two standard deviations below the mean for Australia. We could keep going doing exactly what we were doing and getting exactly what we were getting. And the problem with that is that really the shifts are very small. The opportunity is to view what you're doing in a different way. And we're abs- I-, I like to think that we're a school that really values progress and anything you do to improve something is progress. And if you get really lucky and you work with a great team, you get innovation at the same time. Thank you very much for sharing that, that insight about your journey with Rudy Hill and the value of opportunity. You mentioned in your response just then, there was a famous story around <laughs> opportunity with you personally. There will be many Australian educators, particularly those at the, at the principal class level, that would be very familiar with you and your work and your mission there at Rudy Hill. But of course, our audience is broader than even Australia, and they wouldn't necessarily be even familiar with Rudy Hill. Could you perhaps give our audience two things? One, a little bit more of a context of the environment in which you're continuing to serve and serve so admirably. And secondly, what was that famous opportunity? The Rudy Hill High Schools in Western Sydney, while this recording's taking place, most of the area where I live, including my own daughter's home and some colleagues' homes, have been experiencing pretty severe flooding. And we've also had a lot of heavy rain, as as people might know, on the east coast of um, Australia. And I'm very privileged to work in Western Sydney And I'm very privileged to work in public education because it has been public education in Western Sydney that has actually been a real crucible for some of the most significant changes. And I think one of the ways to view that is so often Western Sydney is seen as a deficit place. Mm -hmm. You know, during the pandemic, uh, we lived in LGAs of concern, local government areas, which was pretty interesting term and great for theses for the future of how that was done. And for example, many of our students at Rudy Hill High, they speak multiple languages, sometimes one, sometimes two, sometimes three languages, depending on their background. And it's often presented as some kind of a deficit. And I can assure you that when they finish school, their capacity to be bilingual or trilingual, that's not a deficit. That's an asset in a global world. And many of our students go on to great success in that global world, many of our alumni. So it's a very interesting school. But as I said, our students start usually, 60% of our students would start below grade average, Mm -hmm. and some of them would be two stages below. And so it's a very comprehensive school. And we have a number of challenges, but most schools do. I think the goal is not to see it just as a challenge, but to see every student having a journey. And that's the journey to the opportunity that they want for themselves, not necessarily the journey that governments or systems think is the journey that children should take. And our students, by the time they're 18, they're not children, they're adults. They're voting adults with opinions and capacities and abilities. 
So my personal story doesn't relate to school at all, but relates, in fact, to your notion of the game. For people who don't live in Australia, AFL, Australian Football League, is the game called the Australian Game. It's one of many games that we play in Australia. But in 2012, even a bit earlier than that, uh, around 2010, 2011, when I um, was still the president of the New South Wales Secondary Principals Council, I was approached by uh, Dale Holmes, the CEO of AFL New South Wales, to join the community advisory group to establish a new football club in Western Sydney. And I just said to him, I don't have time, Dale. I just don't have time to do this. Anyway, eventually they persuaded me that I could make the time, so I did. Mm-hmm. And then in 2011, I received a phone call um, asking if I would join the board of the new AFL club in, New- in Western Sydney. It was a great privilege to be offered the position. And of course, I said, no, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> I'm trying to do all these other things and still be president of our principal's council. And I rang a colleague of mine in Victoria who'd been very senior in principal work too. And he said to me, get a grip, Chris. He said, you will be the first ever public school principal asked to be on an AFL board and you'll be a woman woman principal. And he said, and you live in Western Sydney. So subsequently, I decided I would give that a try. And so the gal from Western Sydney, as I call myself, uh, the gal from Western Sydney gave it a go. And the same happened when I was invited to join the board of our one of our largest children's charities the Smith family I'm still mm-hmm. I'm still on that board these were opportunities that made me make the decision to step down as president of the principals council which anyone could do but actually to step into these positions to leverage western sydney because that's what I'm about my purpose is to give every student in western sydney the opportunity to do his or her best and for us to provide a way for them to do that. Bill, um, it's uh, such a privilege to sit here and listen to Christine share such a personal insight into when opportunity knocks, do I have the courage to say yes? And I understand, Christine, and many of our listeners would too, that initially we would hesitate for lots of reasons, whether it's time, whether it's family, whether it's whether we think we can make a contribution. But no doubt, Greater West Sydney, the Smith family, and, you know, the Principals Association are organisations that have been richer because of your courage to actually say yes and make a contribution in, the, in that context. So it brings me then to a, another question before I know Phil wants to jump in and interrupt our, our little private chat here. <laughs> and that is talking about opportunity. When opportunity knocks, change occurs as well. Change occurs for the communities that we serve. Change occurs to ourselves when we when we step into these opportunities. And recently, we've had a change of government at the federal level in Australia. And then the Minister of Education is a Labor MP, the Honourable Jason Clare. We've had a lot of talk about education in the press, in politics, for a very, very long time. What do you then believe Mr. Clare's top priorities for education in Australia today and into the future? Well, I wouldn't be an outspoken public school principal if I didn't say there are a couple of, where where there are opportunities, there are sometimes challenges too. And we need to fund public education to the full student resource standard 
And that has been a decade, a decade worth of damage to a really wonderful education system. So that's a that's one of the things I think it's it's just got to happen because we can't keep allowing young people in some schools to not have the same quality of education in this very, very rich country of ours that others take for granted. Education's not a cost cut, you know, a way to save money. It's actually an investment in all of our futures. So that's, I think, you know, that's the first thing. I think we've got another issue to deal with, and and that's our teacher shortage, and it's real. I read in an article yesterday that by 2025, the US will be be short 325,000 teachers because the US does everything at scale, of course, <laughs> in a way we don't understand. But we could easily, by the end of this decade, be ten to 15,000 teachers short in our schools in Australia. We have to look at more broadly what we have done with our young people is really to make it very, very expensive for them to do education and then to underfund our vocational sector, underfund our university sector, to the extent where our students who do an arts degree now, and that includes all teaching degrees, could have to pay up to $110,000 for their higher education contribution. This was a change of legislation made last year, and it was wrong. If you want to encourage young people, you don't cripple them with debt and then ask them to you know, try to find somewhere to live and try to find somewhere to rent and try to get teach, you really actually need to make the pathway a really viable one. And the most successful educational countries in the world do that. And the third thing they do is they don't, and this is probably my most controversial point of the things we have to do, we have to remove the misogyny from the, we have to remove the misogyny from the way teachers are treated and we have to do it fast. My colleague, Bryony Scott, who's at Winona, talks about she is tired of being treated like a child. She has multiple degrees, as do, do I and others. She is a uh, recognised academic expert in her field, as are many of the teachers that I work with. And yet they are this notion that you treat people who work in schools as though they are children, and particularly women, is such a very, very damaging part of the narrative. You know, over the last 10 years, we've underfunded schools, but when our results have dropped, we've said that's the teacher's fault. You know, you can't have it both ways. Schools were successful a decade ago, and I'd argue there was still some room to move, but if schools were successful a decade ago and student results have declined, well, there's either something wrong with the test Oh, there's something wrong with the system because my observations of or, both. Teachers, or both my observations of teachers are that many of them are truly expert and they are all working towards doing better for the students that they teach. It's really interesting hearing you talk with such breadth in terms of your picture as, as a leader in education and a leader in schools. I guess that's one of the advantages of having 25 years of experience in there is that you know you can do the same year 25 times over or you can start as a leader in your school and then and then work your way out christine can you give us the 45 second version of how you got to be a principal 
And then can you map out for us the way in which your leadership started as a leader in schools and then sort of took its way beyond there? 45 seconds, yes. And, 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 and I think that's cute, Phil, that you said 25 years without saying, yes, you must be old. We're all fans of being old. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that wise woman archetype does prove valuable. Other times it's quite dangerous. So the 45-second version is that I've worked all of my career in Western Sydney. So I have depth, not breadth. And that depth led me to seek out working in schools where I felt I could make a difference. And I've come through the pathway of many others of being a, um, being a teacher, then a, then a head teacher welfare. And I have a very strong background in that area and in student, student wellbeing, through to being a deputy principal in a senior high school and then to the principal of Rudy Hill High, which was, I think, the right school for me. I'd applied for a couple of other schools, but... It always felt right going to Rooty Hill. I followed a really brilliant principal, Mal Lever, and uh, I was he left a legacy that allowed the school to be open to change and ready to do things. He had a long background in student leadership work, and so that set a really nice platform for where I was going. So that that gives us an insight into sort of how you got into the role. Now, once you're in the role, how do you go from learning your craft as the leader of a school to being a champion within the local community to being a voice on a national scale for education? Walk us through that. You're probably going to hate this question because you're, you're a very modest sort of person, but I guess our focus in this Series 11 is on leadership, and so it's really, really interesting to track the development of such an experienced person as they've grown in their own leadership. In so many ways, it is about change. In so many ways, it goes back to what I was speaking about before, and that's your purpose. Despite the fact that people think education remains the same, it doesn't. It shifts, and it shifts with each generation of students. There are elements that look the same, but there is change happening all the time, both at the micro level within schools, but also at the macro level within, within the global setting. So if I was to say what were the things that shifted me, I had a deep desire to learn, and I think that matters. I like to think that I have some intellectual grunt, and I like to work with people who have similar educational grunt, who are willing to be open to opportunities to learn. And I've been very privileged to work with, really now it's hundreds of teachers at uh, Rooty Hill. We were having a bit of a laugh the other day about how many deputy principals and principals there are now who worked at Rooty Hill High. And there are quite a few, more than 20, just a bit less than 30 deputies and just a bit less than 10 people who are now principals of schools. And I have seen that as my core Professional learning from when I very first started as a beginning teacher as one of 19 teachers in a school in Western Sydney and the region, as we call it then, decided they needed to run some programs for beginning teachers and at one point asked a friend and myself if we would help coordinate it from the beginning teacher perspective right through to the book that I wrote with Michelle Anderson in 2009, Leading for Learning the notion of building a school of professional practice, 
my career has been about professional learning, or it's been about learning, professional learning for, for staff and the people I work with, learning for our students, of course. But I think that's been the driver, and that's where the source of all the innovation has been. We came up with some pretty clever little strategies. We like them at Root Hill High that's enabled our work to spread out much further into the, to the professional community across Australia and beyond. And in uh, the next couple of months, we're hoping it will be very soon, but the school turns 60 this year. Mm-hmm. So for our 60th anniversary, we have, rather than write a book about our work, we've written a website about our work which we'll be sharing with the professional community on some of the key strategic projects that we've done that have made the most difference. So, Christine, what I'm hearing you say is that there's there's a values proposition that underpins everything that you're doing. I'm going to use a little bit of corporate language here. but it's, How we it's, use it too. Yeah, so there's a values proposition. Yep. So there are principles that ride through everything that you do. But at the same time, there's also a value proposition. So the very, very tangible benefit that is transferred to the lives of members of your community in around what it is that you do. That's, I guess that would be the first observation. The second observation um, is that in your career, you have been an incubator of other leaders. The third observation that I would, I would make around it is that there's almost like a fractalization that goes on at a different scale. So you take is values and value proposition. You take the desire to grow professional learning and a community and you can apply it on any scale. You can apply it within the department, within a school, you can within a community, within the community as a whole. And it's interesting that you mentioned Bryony Scott. I think Bryony is another person who leads in much the same sort of way. If we go back to a previous generation, I think Rod West at Trinity Grammar School used to do this uh, same sort of thing, you know, terrifying to think how many school heads were produced during Rod's time there. Possibly not quite as many as you, but it's it's a fair thing. Um, out of all of this, you've talked about a change readiness and a disposition. We would call it the disposition to take the big step forward and up. That at all points in time, you're looking, you're accepting that change is there and that you're looking for it and so on. Where we've reached in our time in education, uh, it's, it's just so much going on, I think even more than, uh, than probably possibly there was 25 years ago when you were starting to lead a school and, and uh, I was starting to think about what it might look like to lead a school and go beyond leading a department. We're living in times of swift technology advances. There are big demographic shifts, rapid urbanisation. There are shifts in global and economic power. There's resource scarcity. There's biosecurity and climate change as key mega forces on a global level. We've got all of the sorts of things that you've been talking about in Australian education and particularly, you know, the education revolution that wasn't a revolution and then the promise of Gonski that wasn't delivered and then all sorts of weird things that have sort of been happening in between that have kept things in stasis to which you referred earlier. And then you've got all of the engine of growth and development in Western Sydney that's occurring. All right, that's a lot of stuff. There's lots and lots of change going on. There's leadership as values and value proposition as incubating leadership that's fractalising all over the place. You believe that all schools are able to create shifts within these types of trends towards change and that in these schools, 
we can have communities that will commit to new ways of knowing, doing and being. Yep. What does this shift and commitment to new ways of knowing, doing and being look like in practice? Let me start by saying everything that you've described as the huge changes that are taking place can be seen in Western Sydney, almost like a microcosm focus group <laughs> for the for um, for uh, much of what's happening in OECD countries. Indeed, what's the the heart of it? The practice. Well, the heart of it is practice, which is why in 2009, when Michelle and I wrote the book, we had a long discussion with the then leadership team at Rooty Hill about what professional practice as opposed to professional learning looked like. I laugh when people talk about performance pay being flagged out again on the, in the newspapers to get everybody's heart rates up and what have you. I laugh because we've had performance pay in this country now since uh, well, 2006 in New South Wales, certainly 29, 10, 11, with the formation of AHL. It's just that we do it against professional standards. And one might question at times the, the professional standards, whether they need tweaking or updating. But in essence, they are, in my opinion, one of the best things we have in Australia in terms of our leadership because teachers know what the standards are. Now, the sort of minimum ones is the graduate standards. And then there are, of course, the proficient standards, which is what everybody's at. When they were first introduced, there was this idea that somehow or other only 1% of teachers would ever get to be leaders and only, you know, about 10% would get to the next level highly accomplished. In reality, most schools are operating as highly accomplished schools, which is what we call ourselves. We're now a highly accomplished school because proficient is like a driver's license. You get it the first time. One of my big challenges at present is to really think about how we deal with the efforts to deprofessionalize and undermine what were really clever, thoughtful ways for the profession to work and get regard. So if you ask me about practice, that's what we do. And one of the challenges for Rudy Hill is we've been looking at how do we change our practice. One of our most recent pieces of work because we develop things over time. The great advantage of being there a long time is that every new strategic plan builds on the previous one and every successful innovation builds on the previous one. Because when you've taken a risk and you've had a bit of innovation, you're a bit more open to having another go. And one of the ones we're working on at present relates to my big, my very big concern. And this is the one that challenges me the most. And that's how we assess children and their learning in this country and how we could possibly think that using PISA, a sampling test, which we do in year nine and most countries do in year 10, the year 10 equivalent, we do it in year nine for reasons I've never understood. When only about 40% of our students are 15, they've just started the next stage of learning, the stage five part of learning. Most countries do this in year 10 when they've completed the stage five and when nearly all students are 15. Cities like Shanghai do it in year 11. And what concerns me very much is how easily even experts in education on occasions will accept that this is the way we should measure our children and particularly measure our young adults. And to me, it's completely rubbish and it always has been. 
And that's not 25 years of being a principal, that's my entire career. Having started in special education, started working with children with significant disability, I have no reason to think that some of our testing is reliable or valid. I do think the HSC, the High School Certificate, which is our end of school credential in New South Wales, and the equivalents across the country are very, very strong. But this notion of sample testing or, you know, thinking that NAPLAN, for example, might be representative of what children know in year three, five, seven and nine, to me is absolutely anathema because we know that population shifts don't happen that way. And, you know, 40-item tests, you only have to be make one mistake and you're under pressure and you're trying to do it and you can drop from a top band to the next band. And we have our families so panicked about all of this. Meantime, back in schools, real learning's happening and real, real learning's happening and progress is being measured. And one of the ways we've done it is to recognise that in our community, we still have 70% of our families who are uh, in what we call in in Australia the bottom two quartiles. Mm -hmm. And we have 70% of our families who are in that bottom two quartiles, which means they quite often completed a qualification, but it might have been in another country. Mm -hmm. And their occupations do not necessarily reflect that level of education, or they may not have completed that level of education. And when you look and you take that view, those parents are finding it very difficult to engage with year nine maths, but students can engage with it. Students can understand, they can understand what a grade is, but more importantly, it's not sufficient for us just to give kids grades. We actually have to show them what they can and can't do and what they have to do next. So we have a very, very successful personalised learning program where every student sets goals on entry, on enrolment with their families then we work really hard on student agency. And that was never more important than it was during COVID. Our parents did not want to be teaching their children at home. They needed us to find sophisticated and clever ways to engage their children in understanding their own learning and engaging with us. So we've now moved to a more, in every subject, students set a goal for their subject And they write their own reflective comments on that in consultation with their teachers. And we don't know how this is going to go. This is our next innovation. But what we are hoping is that our students will be able to understand and articulate their own growth and attainment. So to do this, we have to look at adult practice. You can't just look at student practice. Mm -hmm. We have some very, very, we call them professional learning and leadership teams. They do a lot of research. They read the academic literature. I spend a lot of time looking for background research for them, as do our other deputy principals, and providing evidence-based practice that's seemed to have been successful in different places, following certain, not necessarily ed gurus, but certainly high-quality educational academics to actually see if there is an evidence base. So is there a value proposition, Phil, to come back to your point to make Mm. the change? Where's the evidence? So the evidence for the goal setting came from Andrew Martin's work at the University of New South Wales Mm -hmm. that said that where students set goals for their own learning in each subject, students, especially students from more disadvantaged backgrounds, make a significant improvement in their growth in learning. 
I think what's really fascinating, Christine, is our audience is today receiving a masterclass from an expert practitioner about starting the journey from the position of a purpose. And to do that, we have to understand our context. And you've so beautifully described for us the context in which you continue to lead, the community in which you continue to lead, and the challenges that, that are afoot for, for those individuals, but also the inherent opportunities. What's really fascinating about the, the community that you continue to serve and lead is that I've also grown up uh, deep in Melbourne's West my entire life. I, I'm still here. So I have an affiliation for what you're talking about and those inherent challenges. I was a deputy head at a school in one of Melbourne's probably poorest socioeconomic suburbs where we had over 55 different nationalities and different waves of migration. And one of the things that we made it really clear from the onset was how do we respect the inherent dignity of each individual? How do we ensure that we are deeply committed to helping them feel they have a sense of belonging, that they, they can bring value and are valued? You've got people in your community not that dissimilar to, to waves of migration, as I have in Melbourne's West. Sitting here listening to you has been fascinating because on one level, I'm excited and exhilarated uh, about what's possible. But on another level, you're speaking to my deepest frustrations about the system and what it values. I love the fact that personalised learning encouraging young people to, to step into their own power of their own self-regulation and self-reflection. And you're backing it with research and evidence that supports that type of practice. But I kind of sense that's only one part of the solution. You then talk about, of course, the empowerment of the adults that are supporting these young people and building their capacity and to being open to their own possibility of what could, could be done. All these things are being done at a local school level, led by a principal who inherently believes that everyone in their community is home to a life. The adults, the parents of the children, and of course, the young children in your care. But more needs to be done, clearly, Christine. More needs to be done with a system, a media, and even parents who focus on the league table, who focus on wanting to... To thinking that if I get my kid into a particular school, I'm going to give them an advantage over someone else in life. That's the reality of the world that we're living in. How, do, how can we realistically chip away at that kind of ideology that goes on to really transform not only what we do in schools, but ultimately society about what we truly value? So I think there's been a lot written about this I mean, I have some personal views and they're really about, they're about pre-selections, but that's another story. There's a lot written about this and there's a lot written about top-down change. There's a lot written about bottom-up change, years of Fullen and Hargrave's work. And I must admit, I'm a pretty big fan of a lot of Andy Hargrave's work, particularly around what schools can actually do. Christine, Andy, Andy spoke to us, I think, on the most recent Game Changers one of the most recent ones, and Michael's one of our guests on this series as well too. Oh, so there's a couple of names there that are <laughs> resonant with us. But there's also um, David Hargrave's very interesting work on the middle. Where do you play in the middle? So as somebody who's belonged to a principals association for a long time and one that's been very influential, I think that the, the professional associations 
and whether they're subject-based or whether they're based on interest like the principles ones are, I think are really important to sustaining professional authority. Some years ago, I was very much involved in the writing of a paper for the New South Wales Secondary Principles Council called The Role of the Principal. And in that document, the council articulated the sources of authority and sources of accountability that were held by principals. In my opinion, this hasn't changed, no matter what the media or um, certain politicians might think. And And the argument that we put was that the authority of the principal came from the employer Um, And that could be, you know, in the independent sector, a a board, but certainly in our sector, the government. It also came from the profession, that there's a professional authority that principals hold. That's where Bryony and I would most often find ourselves speaking together, for example, around things that mattered professionally. But there's a third source of authority, and that's the authority of the school community. The permission that parents give by sending their children to your school it doesn't matter what choice parent I mean I may have a view about parent choice mm-hmm. but I also have a I also have a very strong view that once that choice is made the parents are then waiting have given you the authority to do the best for their children as possible and in some schools that's very tricky some schools have a very very difficult circumstances and in other schools it's easy But that also gives you three levels of accountability. You're accountable to the employer. In our case in Australia, some of the media and particularly some of the right-wing media want to make that the big deal. You're accountable to the profession. And for mine, that is the source of change. Doctors, Doctors expect to be listened to. Nurses expect to be listened to based on their expertise. Teachers, it is the same. There is a level of expertise. Just because you went to school doesn't mean you have any idea of the complex interactions that are in a classroom every single day. But then there's an accountability to your community Mm -hmm. that sometimes means I have to stand with this community no matter what others are doing to them. I have to speak if they don't have a voice. We have to speak. We have to stand together. Certainly in Western Sydney, our public school principals feel the weight of that speaking for our community incredibly heavily. And it's not one school at Rudy Hill, and we're very privileged to have 65 schools in northwestern Sydney, and our principals will speak with one voice about what's needed for our public secondary schools in Western Sydney. So I think it's not just about purpose, but it's also about understanding your sources of authority and your sources of accountability. And no matter how much one source may wish to take control, to remain true to the purpose of what we're trying to do to improve the lives of young people in this country, we have to recognise that there's more than one source of authority, more than one source of accountability. Christine, I just wonder there whether part of that need to be the voice of the community it also is about helping the community to understand what really matters for children and therefore what measuring what matters looks like in a school because it seems to me that the one thing that really hasn't changed very much in my time 
in education since the late 1980s. We still keep measuring the same sorts of things. So by and large, I mean, we're, we're supposed to move to a standard reference system, but we've still got ATAR. Which it's still norm-referenced, isn't it? And there's still a bell curve. And as Adriano said, there are those who have and those who have not. How do we help school leaders to promote a narrative to their community about what really matters? Because let's face it, the media is not going to do it. Our politicians, by and large, aren't going to do it. We don't have the sort of moral authority of other social organisations at the moment. The weight is on the shoulders of school principals, whether we like it or not. They're there. And the school is the modern parish. How do we help school principals to identify what matters and to focus on measuring what matters for their communities? Well, there is some really great work being done in this space. And I reference the work that Jim Tognolini is doing, for example, on you know, what is it he quotes Cronbach, which is that if an if something exists in a certain amount, then that amount can be measured. And if it can be measured, it can be defined. And if it can be defined, it can be assessed. And I think that there is some really interesting and good work being done here, not just nationally, but internationally, in looking at how we measure those things that we truly value. That's a Hargrave's quote 1984 originally although people like to quote him more recently than that but it was originally in his eight paradoxes the book about the eight paradoxes where he where he said that so I I think I think what has to happen is that when things work well and when there are some lead schools and I know you've interviewed a number of principal colleagues of mine who are doing very similar or even more cutting-edge work than than we've been doing at Rooty Hill when when people make a decision to do that, schools adopt each other's and adapt each other's work. And you're not always a front runner. Some schools have really great ideas and you use and, and you might say, can I use yours or can you we, can you share that with us? And that sharing of practice across schools was better when we could work better across sectors. We used to do a lot of work together across sectors when I was first a principal, but Government policy with funding has made that very, very difficult because there are haves and have-nots. So I do think that the sharing of practice is is critical. I think if you've got a good idea, I think you should discuss it with others. But it's also, as you said, Phil, when you asked me that question earlier, you can change the content of what you're doing, but you need a really good set of practices that continue and That's, you know, find the evidence, do the plan. We still use the plan, implement, review strategy. What do we need to do in planning? Where do we gather our research? Where do we gather our data from? Uh, Then how will we implement it? How do we do a design of implementation? How do we fail fast and fail early? If the prototypes don't work, what do we modify? What do we change? What do we stop doing? Um, And I think that's a really important conversation. But it's a process that continues and it's embedded in a set of practices of the ways that we work. In my opinion, teams matter. Uh, and that's not just because I was on the board of an AFL team, but uh, but I do, I learned a lot 
the greatest sporting code in Australia, Christine. Oh, please, please, please. the pair of you stop. This. I know. I won't. I, 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 he started it. It was, I, I, yeah, it, was bad, it was. It was bad enough thing the Wallabies lose on <laughs> Saturday night, and then to turn up on Monday morning and have you two yammer on about AFL. Oh well, no, that's okay because I come from a long line of people who played rugby union, so it's okay. There we go. Perfect. Right. And Perfect. I work with. I work with a number of people who are desperate All Blacks supporters not just the Waratahs. So, Phil, it's okay, any sport, any time. But the value, the, value of, the value of that is how the team plays. Yeah. And, and over the weekend, I just happened to have the ABC radio and I was listening to the rugby league, the pre-rugby league presentation, and I heard the most fantastic quote, I think from Matthew Elliott, and he said, you know you're playing in a high-performing team when they don't have to stop to think. Mm. Because you know you're in trouble if you're slowing the game down and stopping to think. And I thought to myself, isn't that interesting? Because when you've got a set of practices that work and a set of processes that work, the team can change over. Different people might come in and out of your team. But where you've got strong teams underpinning the work, then they're not stopping to think. They're getting on with the implementation They've done their thinking and planning off the field and then they're on the field for the game. And that's the same for teachers. You're doing your planning, but then you're on the field for the game. You're in your classroom. You're in your school working. You're providing that leadership all the time. One of the things I'm proudest of at Rudy Hill was during COVID because we just, you know, a lot of people dropped in and out and it's still going on. It's, you know, some days... In Western Sydney, as many colleagues across the country will know, we have lots of up to 20 staff away at times and up to 100 students. We're still, you know, we're not through this yet. Mm. And one of the things that's really interesting is that we formed subject teams and they made sure that, for example, for Year 9 maths, there was work available for students, but not just work, there were lessons for staff. Mm -hmm. So that if you were coming in, and you didn't have to use it. If you're an expert, you just did your own thing. But if you weren't, you could pick up this lesson, which is very, we spent a lot of time on lesson design at Rudy Hill, and you could pick up this lesson and pretty much implement it. It was useful if you had some training in the subject area. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but particularly for year seven and eight, it allowed us to provide continuity of learning, which for me has become the most critical thing. Continuity of learning and sensible assessment post-COVID are going to be the two, in my opinion, the two most critical things we're going to have to do because we can't necessarily guarantee at the present time, we can't guarantee continuity of learning in any school in any country that's been impacted by COVID. Christine, I'm very conscious of the time and I've got millions more questions that I'd love to <laughs> engage you with because this has been a deeply engrossing and fascinating conversation. We've had insights from you around a masterclass about change readiness. We've had insights from you around a masterclass about a shift to the future. We've had a masterclass about humility in leadership and what that looks like for today's principles. But we've also had a masterclass around the fact that principals have enormous agency and enormous authority, and it's given to them by so many different bodies. And if they are prepared to lean into that and be a champion of those 
that real transformation can occur not only for themselves, of course, but for the communities they lead. So I'm going to ask you the final question before I wrap it up. And this one is a question we're actually going to, we're going to ask every single one of our guests in this series. And I know you're on Twitter as well. So it's going to have a relationship to that. If you only had 280 characters to tweet a definition of leadership, what would it be? I wouldn't use leadership. I would use leading. Practice is about verbs, not nouns. Mm -hmm. So leading is having the courage and agency to pursue what is best for the people with whom you work and to pursue a genuine purpose for the young people of our country. Christina, it has been wonderful to have you on Series 11 of The Game Changers. Today, Phil, we have witnessed uh, an educational leader who remains forever curious through the examples of the readings that you shared with us and, and the research. We've also encountered a leader who is deeply compassionate about the community they serve and so in tune with that local context. A leader who is not afraid to step into the courage of leadership that's required in leading and, and also being an important voice. And I feel your conviction, Christine, is something that we could all learn from and continue to value in education. We need more Christines in, in education, more who are prepared to, to step into their own agency and understand the, the inherent value that we continue to bring in education to the young people in our care. Christine, it's been a real honour and a privilege to have you on Game Changers. Thank you very much. Thank you both very much for having me. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.